Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse on the hallowed ground of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Good to be with you, everyone, for episode 15 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast or have enjoyed past episodes, please help us keep the podcast going by sharing it with your friends. Also, please consider downloading, subscribing, and especially reviewing the podcast at iTunes. We are also developing a more concrete way you can support our efforts here, so stay tuned for more details in future episodes. Well, Drew, our studios are located about 30 miles north of Gettysburg Battlefield, so I guess it was inevitable that we would do an episode on the Civil War. Yes, it was indeed inevitable. But, you know, I'm going to risk getting a little too meta here because, (laughs) you know, we're also going to be simultaneously talking about comic books today. And those of us who are nerdy like me who follow comics closely, you know that Captain America Civil War, the movie just came out, and Marvel Comics are just now wrapping up their Civil War II event in print. But don't worry, we are keeping our discussion focused on the historical Civil War, as we are joined by renowned historic graphic novelist Jonathan Fetter Vorm. He received a BA in history from Stanford and an MFA in writing from Columbia. His book Trinity, a graphic history of the atomic bomb, was selected by the American Library Association as a best graphic novel for teens in 2013. His most recent book, Battle Lines, was co-authored with Penn State historian Ari Kelman, who had himself just received a Bancroft Prize for his book, A Misplaced Massacre. Yeah, I just finished Battle Lines a couple nights ago, actually this weekend. I was riveted by it, and you'll see during the interview, I think my enthusiasm for this kind of graphic history really comes out. Now, Drew, you've lived in the shadow of Gettysburg, your Carlisle boy, right, most of your life. What comes to mind when you think about the Civil War? Well, I mean, 
I've obviously been to Gettysburg on numerous field trips. And in fact, actually, I, I think I went once with you when I was taking your Civil War class. That's right. But um, I was, you know, beyond that, I was also just very aware growing up that I lived in one of the few places north of the Mason-Dixon line that bears the physical scars of the Civil War. As you mentioned, I grew up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and the, um, the Cumberland County Courthouse is marked by an artillery barrage ordered by Jeb Stewart just before he was called by General Lee to return to Gettysburg. Yeah, I vividly recall, I don't think it was your class, but I vividly recall taking my Civil War class to Gettysburg. Uh, this must have been maybe 10 years ago. And we had this tour guide who was a local clergyman, Baptist clergyman in the area. And, you know, he told us to meet us at this certain spot on the battlefield. And then we walked into the woods. And as we followed this trail through the woods, we start hearing this music and when we it's the music from the movie Gettysburg and then when we we finally reach this tour guide he's parked there with a Subaru hatchback with a huge map uh, a sort of a life-size sort of you know 8 foot tall map of the battle of Gettysburg and the first thing he says to us is you're standing on sacred ground. You know, so, I mean, it gets pretty intense around this central Pennsylvania area. At that point, I knew I wasn't in New Jersey anymore. They, they take this stuff pretty serious here. Now, of course, as always, we have our studio producer, Michaela Mummer. She's with us today. Michaela, you grew up in this area, too. What, what is your uh, Civil War story that you could tell us? Well, again, since I grew up in this area, you know, Gettysburg was a huge focus. I always took field trips to Gettysburg and that kind of thing. I actually recently toured the battlefields again over the summer and could really actually take in all the history now that I can, you know, actually think about it more and not just like as like an elementary school kid just walking around the battlefield for fun, just being outside and not locked in a classroom. Right. But um, I'm from Dover, Pennsylvania, and I've always heard this story that the Confederate soldiers took Dover for a night and like marched up the main street. I do not know how accurate that is at all. I've never found any facts to back that up, but that's all I've heard my entire life, so they take pride in that, I guess. Yeah, that could be true, right, Drew? Because the the, the Confederates marched on the way up to Gettysburg through, would have probably gone through Dover, right? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of things that, you know, living in Harrisburg, people in Camp Hill, which is just across the river from Harrisburg, like to talk about how they are the real high water mark because they are slightly north of Gettysburg. And, and so right, right. They, they are they are actually the most northern reach of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. So there are a lot of those stories. I hear that story, too, about Mechanicsburg, right? That it was they were in this is the northernmost point. So yeah. everybody's battling for these, you know, these places in kind of Civil War memory. You know, for me, I, I'm not a big fan of the Civil War. Like, I teach it. It's part of my teaching load here at Messiah College. I haven't taught it in years, actually, for a variety of reasons. But I'm not a military historian. And everybody who's into the Civil War, like, they love the military, you know. So I get students who maybe are not history majors who come into my Civil War class and they know everything about, you know, the right flank on Pickett's Charge and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not particularly interested in that stuff. I'm very interested in battlefields as kind of sacred sites of kind of civil religion and those kinds of things. Or I'm interested in the political dimensions of the Civil War. But it can sometimes be pretty tough for a non-military historian teaching the Civil War 30 miles north of Gettysburg. No, I, I mean, absolutely. I will say it can be a little bit hard to separate fact from myth in a place like central Pennsylvania. I mean, yeah. it's so written into the, the psyche of our communities. 
and it and it's really is an important part of how we see our nation, um, how we remember the 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 for, like like you said about battlefields and the formation of of the American nation. But um, and and I you know at the same time I think it means very different things to different people. And so luckily our guest today will help us sort out many of these important stories. But before that, you have something to share with us today, John, about one of the giants of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln. On March 4, 1865, Abraham Lincoln stood behind a small ivory table on a platform outside of the United States Capitol building to deliver his second inaugural address. It had rained much of the morning, and it was cold. But this did not stop the president from delivering what would become one of the most important addresses in American history, and perhaps one of the most powerfully theological statements ever uttered by an American president. Lincoln was addressing a nation nearing the conclusion of a long and bloody civil war that took 600,000 lives. His speech would be far from triumphant. It was a meditation on one of the most tragic moments in American history. Lincoln could have easily used his speech to cast blame. He could have called down scorn and punishment on the nearly defeated South. This, after all, is what the religious leaders of the day had been doing since the outbreak of war in 1861. Northern ministers firmly believed, many of them without hesitation and with much confidence, that the inevitable Union victory confirmed that God was indeed on the side of the North. For example, consider the words of Henry Ward Beecher, a congregational minister and one of the most famous men in America in the 19th century. Here's what he said about the war. I charge the whole guilt of this war upon the ambitious, educated, plodding political leaders of the South. They have shed this ocean of blood. A day will come when God will reveal judgment and arraign at his bar these mighty miscreants. And then from a thousand battlefields shall rise armies of airy witnesses who, with the memory of their awful sufferings, shall confront these miscreants with shrieks of fierce accusations, and every pale and starved prisoner shall raise his skinny hand in judgment. And then these guiltiest and remorseless traitors, these most accursed and detested of all criminals, that have drenched a continent in needless blood and moved the foundations of their times with hideous crimes and cruelty, caught up in the black clouds full of voices of vengeance and lurid with punishment, shall be whirled aloft and plunged downward forever and forever in an endless retribution, while God shall say, Thus shall it be to all who betray their country." And all in heaven and upon earth will say, Amen. Or what about William Patton, a Protestant clergyman from New Haven, Connecticut? Yes, vengeance belongs to God, he said. But he has his human instruments to carry out his vengeance. He will not allow this land to be polluted with the innocent blood unavenged, shed by these rebels. We must wipe it out. If they are not hung, the mildest that we can injustice do to them is to put them on probation for the rest of their lives. Malice. Vengeance judgment. 
the casting of the South into hell. This was how Northern Christians wanted to handle the defeated South. But Abraham Lincoln was not so sure. As he began to speak, a burst of sun thrust through the clouds. It must have been an amazing sight for those in Washington that day. Frederick Douglass, the former slave turned nationally known abolitionist, was seated near the front of the crowd. He called what he was about to hear more of a sermon than a state paper. And here is some of what Lincoln said. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not, that we not be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. Neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must need be that offenses cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must need come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he give to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe to those by whom the offenses came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continues until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. The Almighty has his own purposes. Let us judge not that we not be judged. With malice toward none, with charity toward all. When it would have been easy to call down the wrath of God on the South, Lincoln appealed to the mystery of God. Lincoln was speaking not only to his supporters, but to the South and to those politicians in his own political party who were ready to exploit this tragedy, the Civil War, for, the, for political gain. These radical Republicans, as they were called, were prepared to humiliate the South by making it very difficult, if not impossible, for them to return to the Union. With this in mind, Lincoln urged the nation to approach the post-war settlement not with revenge, but with love. All Americans, Lincoln suggested, were to blame for this ugly war. 
the hands of both the North and the South had been dirtied by slavery. It was now time for individual and national repentance. Lincoln implied that his northern politician friends should be careful to take the plank out of their own eye before they passed legislation to remove the speck from the collective eye of the former Confederacy. Not only was Lincoln charged with the responsibility of bringing the South back into the Union in the wake of the Civil War, but he also faced the task of restoring and then preserving American democracy amidst a culture war. The military conflict was just about over, but it would not be easy to rise above the differences that would linger between North and South, and even between Republicans and Democrats. Lincoln would ask the nation to work together in an act of reconciliation, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan. Anger and vengeance would do little to promote the kind of society necessary for American democracy to flourish once again in the United States. Lincoln would not be alive to see the quick escalation of this culture war a war that would have severe consequences for America's national unity and race relations in this country. To the detriment of the nation, few political leaders took Lincoln's advice. It is only now, in hindsight, that we celebrate his famous words. There was a lot that was different about the country that Abraham Lincoln addressed the first week of March 1865 and the country that we live in today. But there are also a lot of similarities. We as Americans continue to be engaged in a culture war, one that spills over into our politics and the way we generally treat one another. We see it everywhere, on cable news, on talk radio, on Facebook and Twitter, and on the internet. Perhaps you want to make the world a more peaceful, charitable, and loving place. Or perhaps you realize that you may be part of the problem. If you are like me, both are true. But whatever the case, Lincoln's words may offer some guidance, hope, exhortation, and comfort. Lincoln condemned the institution of slavery, But as president, he could either, one, let a festering hatred and judgmental attitude toward the South simmer, allowing it to destroy his community, in this case, the community of the United States, or he could exercise forgiveness and mercy and work toward reconciliation. Lincoln also seemed to understand the concept of humility when he told his audience that the Almighty has his own purposes— I think he was sending a message here to all of the self-righteous clergy and politicians who thought that they knew the will of God on the matter of the Civil War and, as a result, were ready to cast judgment on the South and send them to perdition. Finally, Lincoln's phrase, malice toward none, charity toward all, reminds us that the president knew the kind of love that was needed to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for those who borne the battle, and for his widow, and his orphan. But this kind of self-effacing love goes even further. It was the malice of the North and the South that triggered this deadly civil war, and Lincoln knew that the potential for malice in the wake of the war was great. The word malice is more than mere evil, but it can be defined as an intent to harm. We exercise malice not only when we physically abuse or injure someone, 
but when we verbally do the same. Lincoln is telling his fellow Northerners to have malice toward none, even the Confederates with whom they just fought. I would encourage you to go home and Google Lincoln's second inaugural address. Read it again. Read it to your kids. And in times like these, let's remember what Lincoln said on that rainy and then sunny March day in 1865. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We are very excited today for our Civil War episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast to have graphic historian Jonathan Fetter Vorm with us. He is the author of Battle Lines, A Graphic History of the Civil War. Great to have you on the show, Jonathan. Oh, it's great to be here, John. Thanks. Tell us a little bit about, you know, I'm, I'm assuming some of our audience may know what a graphic history is, but tell us, could you just define what is a graphic history and then who is your audience for this book, Battle Lines? Sure. Yeah, this is a problem that I have whenever I'm introducing myself at a cocktail party because this is a <laughs> genre that it's really just being made up as we go. That's um, great. It's a, imagine a book length comic book and graphic history is, which is what I do is you know, as its name implies, focused on telling historical tales using the medium of comics. And, and maybe the most famous version of this genre is Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which came out in the 70s. And okay. that really sort of defined the genre. But it's, it's constantly growing. And there are a ton of topics out there that haven't even yet been considered as, as graphic histories. So it's a pretty wide open field. Sure. Now, when we think of comic books or comics, we think of, of young people. Who is your audience? Is this for adults? Is this for, for kids? For, you know, who are you writing? Well we're, well, we're marketing it and finding a pretty good audience among high schoolers, early college age readers, some middle schoolers. But the thing about graphic novels is that it really spans generations. I know I grew up reading comics and a lot of my a lot of my friends in their 30s and 40s, they, they love reading graphic novels as well. So when I, was, when I was working on it, what I wanted to do was make a book that I would be happy reading, that I would be happy picking up at a bookstore. And then at the back of my mind was always this awareness that what I need to do is try to make this history accessible to a younger audience and especially to an audience that may not be into history. I love history, but what I want to be able to do is, is put a book on a kid's desk and she thinks she's going to be bored by it. But once she starts flipping through the pages, she realizes that actually the Civil War is pretty interesting. 
Great. Yeah, that that was kind of almost my experience. I mean, I'm an American historian by training. I have a PhD in American history. I picked up the book the other night and read it in one sitting and was riveted by it. Maybe we'll get to some of this in the in the upcoming questions. But uh, Drew and I were just talking before we kind of came on the air here about, you know, the about assigning this book in a college class. It's so well done. Now, you, you co-authored the book with the noted Civil War historian Ari Kelman. Tell us something about your working relationship with uh, Ari. Our listeners might be interested in knowing something about the collaboration process, you know, how this how this works because obviously you have a kind of award-winning scholar working with you on this book. You know, wh- what's the back and forth like? You know, do you have face-to-face meetings? You know, how how does this all play out? I was approached by Ari to do a Civil War book, and I, mm-hmm. I was—I have to admit—I was a little skeptical at first because I've talked to a lot of academics who are excited about the potential of graphic histories, but it's a—it's hard to translate historical ideas, especially academic historical ideas, into onto the the drawn page. And and Ari had a lot of really cool ideas. He first approached me with the idea of trying to tell the Civil War from totally new perspectives trying to tell not just aspects of the Civil War, like parts of the history that don't often get told in popular accounts, but framing it in ways that he had never seen before. So that was really what sold me on the idea. Originally, he had a ton of really wild ideas for each chapter. He he gave me a chapter list of like, here's what we want to talk about. And he framed it as a kind of examination of objects. Each chapter would start with an object. And... At first, there were lots of ideas that were pretty hard to visualize how they were going to work. At one point, Ari thought we should tell a chapter from the point of view of a dysentery bacterium. And yeah, things like that, that I'm like, yeah, this sounds amazing, but I have no idea how I'm going to draw this. And once we got a little back and forth going about like, okay, let's, let's be as wild as we can, but we also have to figure out how to actually put this on paper. We established a pretty nice working relationship where... Ari would talk about, you know, from his, he would put his historian hat on and be like, well, this is what we need to cover. And then I would go and uh, read, you know, five of the books that he would recommend I go read. And I would take that and distill it into a narrative, into some sort of either a personal account from someone who has experienced the time or maybe something a little more removed, kind of a narrative about, about the important historical facts. And I would write it up like a movie script. And I'd send that to Ari and then he'd, he'd go over and be like, well, we can't do that because that's not true. Or we can't do that because, you know, that's not the right kind of history they want to talk about. And he'd send that back to me and then I would do my edits. And over the course of, oh man, too longer than I want to admit, probably <laughs> maybe about a year, we narrowed it down into a working script. And then it was just figuring out how to draw it. Tell us something about the research behind the images and graphics you created. What was the, you know, what was the relationship between your imagination and actual historical photographs and images? And you kind of got to this a little bit in your in your previous answer. Well, yeah, this is actually an, another important thing in relation to this answer. That early on, Ari and I decided that we were going to solve the problem of how to tell this history in an accurate way, but also you know, make it visually interesting. What we had to do was figure out where we're going to draw the line on fabricating stories and versus taking it from the historical record. And so the line that we drew in the sand was that we were never going to put words into real people's mouths on the page. 
So we would never have a drawing of Abraham Lincoln with Abraham Lincoln saying something that he didn't say or didn't write down. What that meant was that a lot of the storytelling, the heavy weight of the storytelling, fell onto composite characters that I was responsible for developing. Based on my research into personal accounts, diaries, and whatnot, about people who actually lived. And then on top of all of that, we had the visual record. And one of the great things about doing a book about the Civil War, especially a graphic book, is that this was coincided with the birth of photography. And there's a wealth of visual resources that don't exist for wars before the 1860s. The Civil War was really where a lot of American photographers were learning how to use the medium to tell the story of the war. And a lot of that information is easily accessible today. So I went from a lot of Matthew Brady images, Alexander Gardner, uh, a lot of, in fact, there's one chapter called The Photograph that is really based on what it meant for these photographers to be going out in the field and trying to capture the battles, which was actually an, an irony of the fact that the, the technology of the time wouldn't let them capture any actual fighting. They always had to show up after the, after the battle was over when the soldiers were lying dead on the field and made very good uh, still life subjects. And and so, you show them and you show them moving you know moving the bodies the right way so they can get the best picture. I loved how you did that in a couple of the frames. Yeah, it's very it's very theatrical and and it was a it, it was an interesting convergence when I was drawing that chapter, realizing that that these guys 150 years ago were doing the exact same thing that I'm doing right now, which is that you're you're figuring out ways to deploy visual tricks to communicate true information. And so it's it's a gray area. It's not fabricating. It's not like Matthew Brady or Alexander Gardner in this instance went and you know made something up when he photographed the dead at Gettysburg. But he did tell a story that may not have literally happened. The, the Confederate sharpshooter in his den may not have been a Confederate and may not have been a sharpshooter, but it communicates the, the horrors of the war in a way that a large audience could understand. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I really found captivating about battle lines was you did not shy away from the sort of violent and bloody nature of the conflict of the war. Discuss your, your you know, what was your decision-making process in terms of, you know, the blood and the gore? There's the one chapter with the field hospital, for example, is, is our, you know, our studio producer, Michaela, I was showing it to her just, just before we went on the air. We were like, wow, this is, you know, you, you, really, you really went for it here with this amputation stuff. Tell us a little bit about your decision-making process there. How far do you go on that kind of stuff? You know, how much do you sanitize it? Yeah, it's a challenge. And with I, I started thinking about this with my previous book, Trinity, which is a graphic history of the first atomic bomb. Right. And between Trinity and Battle Lines, I've had the, the challenge of trying to depict really horrifying scenes of, of mass death. And the, the problem that I keep circling around is how do you show what actually happened, which was truly horrifying, but you do it in a way that isn't either A, so horrifying that when people look at it, they stop thinking, they can't focus, they put the book down, they run away. Or B, that it's so graphic that it starts to skew over into the realm of uh, like a zombie comic. Yeah, when I don't yeah. want to make the gore look like it's played for effect, even though sometimes it is an effect. Because what it is, is it's communicating these horrors of what actually happened. So... The amputation was a good 
a good chapter to talk about this because it's you know it's explaining about the military technology of the time sure. and about how the mini a ball was so much more destructive than any of anybody was willing to admit that these guys were firing these huge chunks of lead at each other from really short distances and the balls were just destroying bodies so that's a really important thing you need to understand if you want to understand how terrible the civil war was but that also means i have to show it one of the techniques that i've figured out is about pacing pacing when the gore occurs and when when you see the violence and when you see the blood my ideal situation is that when i'm drawing the violence works as a sort of punctuation it's a punch and with for that to work it means that you have to have a lot of time a lot of space in your narrative in which there isn't gore which there isn't blood which there isn't violence when violence is sort of implicit or seething but it's not shown and so i was really struggling throughout this to figure out how to how to score it right so that you have enough pages of tension and build up and then you finally just show it right right that was my best way of avoiding the I don't want to tease. I don't want to tease it too much, and I don't want to be coy. I want to just show, show the things that I read about happening. But there, you know, I also don't want to under, overwhelm the reader. Most of the scenes with blood, your choice of kind of colors, it was not a kind of bright red, right? I mean, it was a kind of a yeah. dull kind of what brownish almost kind of color. Yeah. Uh, um, was that deliberate, or was that just the kind of color scheme of the whole of the whole novel? Because there are no sort of r- bright splashes, right, of any kind of color, right. you know? Yeah, it's it's that is that is a tactic. A, a goal of the the book was everything is sort of washed out. If you look right. closer, there's really only three colors. Well, let's say four colors that I used. Yeah. There's the Confederate cornflower blue. There's the Union ultramarine blue. There's the blood, and then there's the brown, and yeah. with a, with a couple exceptions. But I wanted the palette to just be severely limited, so sure. that you, so that everything sort of, especially in those battle scenes, everything sort of mixes together. You can't tell what's mud, what's blood, and what's uniform. Yeah, I also noticed that you use the same color, you know, in some of the early maps to show the expansion of slavery. It was actually the same. I'm probably reading way too much into this, but it was the same color to show the sort of spread of slavery on the map of the East Coast, as was the same color as the blood that you use. Now, I don't know if there's, I guess you were just oh, limited. Oh, no, totally. Yeah. No, that's, ex- I mean, the, I love it when you read things into my, into my drawings. <laughs> good, that's, good. What, that's what makes me get up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what we were going for. Good. And if you look closely, there's, you know, is, is the book in the beginning of the book, it's a very clear line between North and South that people that I illustrate the North in, in the Northern blue and the South in the Southern blue. And by the end of the book, the colors are confused yeah. and it becomes very hard to tell what side someone is on. Because, in part, the war itself became so messy. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was telling Drew before we went on, I said, I, I read it quickly, but, you know, I, I I need to go back and read it more slowly to see the kind of, <laughs> you know, artistic decisions. That's one of them. I'm going to go back and look at that again. My favorite chapter, Jonathan, is chapter nine. That's the chapter on the draft riots. I think the title of it is The Draft Numbers. And you yeah. tell the story there of the New York City draft riots from three different perspectives, uh, the perspective of the white Irish working class, the so-called rioters. And then I guess you could call it uh, upper class 
class or upper, upper middle class family who has a son who has this moral conscience, but he kind of is, you know, a little weak in sort of will to kind of carry out his moral convictions if he really has them. And then two characters, a young girl and an older man associated with a black orphanage. Tell us about that chapter, about its creation. How did you maybe work with Ari on that? Because that's just an incredibly compelling chapter. The Draft Rights chapter is also one of my favorites. I was really excited throughout this book to figure out ways to make each chapter feel like it's a different kind of storytelling. And that goes back to Ari's original idea for this book. I want to get to I wanted to get to a point where, you know, every time you turn one of those chapter pages, you couldn't necessarily be sure what the story was going to be about, where it was going to start, and how it was going to be told. I really wanted for my own selfish reasons, to just kind of flex my muscles as a graphic storyteller. Sure. And the Draft Riots chapter, it seems, I, I early on, I remember saying to Ari, because we, we originally, what we wanted to do was tell the story of uh, Dr. James McCune Smith, who was one of the first, if not the first African-American surgeon trained in the U.S. He ran the Colored Orphans Asylum in New York. Okay. And it was... I wanted to tell his story, but again, we ran into this problem of I, I didn't have much of a record of his, of, of what he said, of things that he said. So it was really hard to, to tell this specific event using his language because I would have had to make it up. And we, again, we drew the line there. So, so the workaround that I had was trying to figure out basically how to tell the story of everyone who was around Dr. Smith. And Dr. Smith makes an appearance toward the end, but of course he doesn't say anything. So so I have the character of one of his one of his wards, who is also sort of a an orderly in the hospital, running errands. And I I took a lot of inspiration from two movies from Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York and Paul Agassiz's Crash. Crash, I I remember just thinking that it was a it was a cool way to tell a story when you have a bunch of little narratives in the beginning that you're not really sure how they're going to, how they're going to line up. And then there's some climactic conclusion where everything comes together and fits into place. On the other hand, using Crash as my inspiration, I wanted to avoid a lot of the kind of heavy handedness that that movie suffered from a lot of, it was, it was also talking about riots and race relations, but I wanted to make sure that this, that my version felt, felt a little more modulated. And again, this was one of those chapters where I knew that I wanted to save the violence for the end that the riots went on for several days and they were incredibly destructive and scores of African-Americans were lynched or burned, targeted on the streets. And then the riots ended when the, when soldiers from Gettysburg came to New York and had to, had to threaten to open fire on the crowds. Right. Originally I was going to tell the whole thing, but I realized that what I, what would really communicate the message efficiently was to focus just on one act of violence. And that's, that's really what this chapter revolves right. around. Well, definitely, it's, it's sort of worth the price of the book. At each page, you use the three different stories, you know, as you sort of move through the chapter. Another one of my favorite chapters was uh, chapter 14, General Lee's Sword. 
And in this one, you focus on Confederate soldiers at the end of the war. A lot of it is is them sort of naming the names of their friends who have died during the various battles of the war. So you you kind of, you know, to me, it was kind of a celebration of kind of human dignity, if you will, and those who sacrificed for this cause, what you know, for good or for bad. But each page in the chapter includes, it's usually in the center, if I remember correctly, a kind of a frame, I guess you would call it, with an image of Robert E. Lee's sword. Tell us about the kind of the decision there. What is the General Lee's sword, the title of the chapter? Um, what, what were you trying to uh, communicate there? Well, this was one of the classic, as I came to understand, a classic Ari chapter in that Ari <laughs> had set out that, you know, this is about trying to take away some of the, or deconstruct some of the mythology that's arisen about the Civil War. Right. And one of those myths, an important one, is that at the surrender at Appomattox, General Lee gave General Grant his battle sword. And, then, and it has been depicted almost you know, since the day after Appomattox. It was drawn as this, this very dignified transition of power that General Lee, the, the celebrated tactician, is, is handing over the mantle of defeat to, to General Grant. And, and it's full of potent. It's a beautiful image. Right. And, but the closer you look at it, the more it, you realize that it is just a convenient symbol. And so what we wanted to do with this chapter was, was begin with, a, with a, some images that communicated some of that reverence for Lee, especially as Lee is walking down in front of his troops, and then slowly chip away at that. So we follow this soldier who is returning home, and he's leaving before he probably should. But as he, as he gets closer and closer to home, these images of the sword keep flashing back in his mind. But the sword itself becomes fainter, and I draw it more loosely, so that by the end it's almost a sketch, and it's sort of a figment. While he's doing all of this, his real struggle of memory is to try to remember the names of all of the soldiers that he fought beside who have died. And so really this chapter for me was about illustrating the challenge of, as as people who remember traumatic experiences, how do we decide what is the important thing to remember? I think it's especially important for a trauma that's on a national scale that we spend extra effort trying to deconstruct the easy myths. And that's, that's really what this chapter is about. And if you notice at the end, by the time he's finally home and settled, the image of the sword has almost just become a blur and replaced by it is him sharpening his plowshares and getting back to work. Right, right. Yeah, I think this is one of the, the sort of genius of this book is, you know, this this chapter on memory, I think, is really a great example of it. But also, you know, the sort of sort of other chapters, a chapter on the, the race riots, some of the chapters that put slaves uh, sort of at the center. It really, you know, it's convinced me that this is a wonderful way of communicating some very complex kind of historiography and scholarly interpretations of the Civil War in, in a kind of very accessible way. So kudos, you guys. I mean, this is just... I I wish more people would write these kinds of graphic histories, and I, I actually would consider using one in a classroom. Our time is our time is up. A couple quick questions to wrap it up, Jonathan. Do you have an, a project you're working on now? And if so, are you willing to talk about it? 
<laughs> I got a few projects. I've uh, transitioned over from doing books. I want to try to do a few shorter articles. It's, I get a little more bang for my buck if I'm not spending five years working on a single project. So right now I'm telling the story of a Stanford sociologist named Richard LaPierre, trying to oh, wow. trying to do some sociology as a graphic essay. Okay, very interesting. Yeah. Tell us, how do we learn more about you, your work, if they want to buy a copy of Battle Lines as a Christmas gift, you know, how do we, how do we get in touch? How do we learn about you and your work? Well, all my work is online. You can go to my website, which is www.fettervorm.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. And you can get your books at, certainly at comic book stores or on Amazon. Sometimes I can find it in, if your bookstore has a graphic novel section. Great. Well, we've been talking with Jonathan Federvorm, the co-author of Battle Lines. Thanks for joining us today, Jonathan. We appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. What a great interview that was. I mean, I'm really convinced that these kind of graphic histories are, are very useful. And I'm also kind of pretty thankful that we actually have a comic book nerd on the staff here uh, named Drew Hermling. I've never purchased a comic book in my life, but I'm so glad, Drew, that you are, are a comic book geek so that you knew about this great work by Jonathan Fettervorm and Ari Kelman. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think there are a lot of people who are doing similar work that could really expand uh, how we teach our classes and, and maybe give give some undergraduate students a different opportunity to come in and, and process historical arguments in different ways. So I assume you accept then the label comic book nerd and comic book geek. Oh, I cannot deny that. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> well, this has been a great episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Jonathan Fettervorm, our studio producer is Michaela Mummert. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, and your host is John Fia. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.